Hi, welcome to our podcast. To learn more about Liverpool One Church, join us live, give financially and to get involved, head to liverpoolonechurch.com. We believe God wants to do great things in and through your life today. Enjoy this message. So great to have you with us for service today in just a few moments, we're going to be kicking off a brand new series. But before we do that, we are going to pray because, um, man, I love the fact that we get to come and we get to worship together. I mean, it's one of the only things that we don't get the opportunity to do in our own week at home alone, but we get to corporately come together to give God praise. But I think that actually what we also have come to church today for is that we all want to leave knowing, feeling and sensing like God has just deposited something in our heart and in our soul. And hey, I ain't that smart to ever believe or expect that that can happen without there being some kind of a a God movement, without God kind of attaching Himself to all of our efforts. And I'm really believing that God is wanting to speak to you today. I know that every single one of us We're going to be gathering in church with a whole different context of life, a whole different background of life. Some of you have come in and you've got like the weight of the world on your shoulders. You've had a really difficult and a really bad week. And I believe that you're going to leave church today knowing, feeling and sensing like you've heard from God. Others of you, maybe like life is doing great, but... But if life is great right now, at some point, life is not going to be great. So I pray that today becomes like a seed to your soul so that when life isn't doing amazingly well, you get to leave church today knowing, feeling and sensing like you've just heard from God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would just take all of these really simple thoughts, ideas and words and that you would bring them to life. Father in heaven, We know from your word that you're able to do incredibly supernatural and miraculous things. And we're asking that you would do that today because we are asking as we come ready to hear your voice, we are asking that you would speak, that you would speak to us so that we feel you and that we know that you're near. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus and everybody said together, amen. Okay, so we are going to be jumping into a new series called God Is. And let me just tell you a little bit about this whole idea and concept. I think that it is unfair sometimes when we get the details about other people wrong. And in our Christian faith, I think that we do this all of the time. In fact, let me tell you a brief story. When Emma and I were dating, you know, like, in the early weeks and months, and maybe you're like looking at one another and you're thinking, is this going to be like my life partner? Is this going to be the girl that I marry? And am I going to be her husband? And you're thinking about this and you're, you're dreaming about this. Well, I'd sent her a text message, you know, because just trying to be romantic, just trying to really let her know that I loved her and I fancied her to death and just let her know that I want to be all over her. And I sent her this message and I said, hey, listen, hon, I want to let you know that you have got the most beautiful blue eyes in all of creation. And the message that I received back was, I don't have blue eyes. And I was like, oh, you don't really? What colour are your eyes then? She's like, my eyes are kind of like greeny brownie. They're not blue. They've never been blue. Whose eyes are you thinking about when you're texting me? I'm like, well, 
I thought I was thinking about you, but perhaps I'm cold. Like, honestly, I have no clue what's going on. But, but she felt somewhat aggrieved that I didn't know all of the intimate details about her. I think the same can happen in church though too. We can come and we can sing the songs and not necessarily know the intimate details about the God that we serve. So in this series, we're gonna be exploring who God is. Who is God according to who scripture tells us? Because actually one of the things that we're all very good at doing is we might learn the Bible story, so we might know what happened in an account of scripture, But way more than knowing the Bible story, it's more important that you learn the same things that our heroes of old learned. And what they learned the most was they learned about the attributes and the characteristics of God. They learned what God was like and then they told those stories so we can learn from them today. A couple of years ago, we were on holiday as a family and it was before COVID. And actually, um, our eldest son, Joash, he was, I think at the time, he was engaged to who is now his wife. And what would happen is that every single night we would go out to this really nice restaurant that was right next door to the hotel. And I'm not going to lie, it wasn't necessarily the cheapest of restaurants. It was the kind of restaurant, and you dads will know exactly what this feels like. It was the kind of restaurant that when you go in, the very first thing you do is look at the price on the restaurant menu, right? You want to know how much is this actually going to set you back? So we sat down and there was like our family and Emma's parents were there and like, Joe Ash's fiance was there and it was just a beautiful restaurant. And man, we were so excited to be there. And I'm looking down the menu and I'm thinking, I'll probably have the salad. I love lettuce. Like literally, it's the cheapest thing there. I'm here to serve, happy to help everybody else. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at it and I can't remember the numbers exactly, okay? And, you know, it was in a different currency. I can't remember it. But but let's say, for example, if my meal was going to be about $10 and I think I was getting the pasta, Everybody else has put their order in. And I'm mindful, like at the end of the day, I'm going to be picking up the bill. So everybody else is ordering. And then it gets to Joash, our eldest son. Joash literally goes, yeah, I'm going to have the, uh, I'll have the sirloin steak done medium rare and I'll have it with that side and that side. Now, the thing is, it was like the most expensive thing on the menu by about four times. So if everybody else's little pasta thing was maybe like $10, that particular type of steak was about $40. Now, husbands, you will know what what happened next. I looked over at my wife as if to say, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to knock him out. And what did Emma say? Oh, we're we're on holiday. Don't be that, don't be that father. Don't be that guy. And I'm like, that guy is going to be $30 lighter because of that kid. So, This all goes round and at the end of the night, I pick up the whole bill like, and I'm grieving because I feel like I'm paying for him and he's not even contributing anywhere. And like, we've even brought his his fiance away and he's picking the top dollar steak. But I'm thinking, I'm going to be gracious because I'm that kind of guy. I'm going to just let this one go. Let this one go, Luke. Next day, we turn up at this same restaurant. It was called La Madiana, and we sit down at exactly the same table. The waiter comes out, and man, he loved us. He brings us the menu. I, again, I'll have the pasta. The pasta, and no, I don't need the salad with that. Like the cheapest thing on the menu. Everybody else goes round, and they order. Gets to Joash. 
Uh, yo, I'm going to have the uh, sirloin steak done medium rare, and I'm going to take that side and that side. And you know what? As well tonight, I'm going to have this side. Now, his meal again was costing four times the price of everybody else's, right? And I'm now looking at Emma. I'm going like, I'm going to, if I don't stand up and punch him in the head right now, I do not know how you're going to control me. And she's just going, oh, okay, we'll speak to him later. Speak to him later. And I'm like, later? Like, yeah, don't make a scene at the table. My parents are here and Josh's, Josh's fiance is here. Don't make a scene at the table. So I'm like, okay. Night three. We sit around at the dinner table. Yo, I'll have the sirloin steak, please. This happens three nights on the bounce. On the fourth night, we're all sat down by the pool and we're discussing where we're going to go for our meal that evening. Josh turns around and he says, you know, I think I'm going to take Jesse on a date tonight. So if it's okay, if I don't do the whole family dinner thing, and we were like, hey, that is awesome for me. <laughs> he said, I'm going to go and take Jesse on a date. We were thinking about getting a table in La Madiana, like, And I was thinking, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> so anyway, they kind of go off and they do their thing. And anyway, later on that evening, when they had come in from their restaurant, from their date night, I turned around to Joey and I said to him, hey, mate, I said, how was the steak? He goes, the steak? Have you seen the price of that thing? I had the pasta. <laughs> I'm like, you, you cheapskate wherever you are. You cheapskates. He knew all along. You know, as a dad around that table, I felt like I was fighting a losing battle. Has anybody else felt like in life you just fight in a losing battle? Have you ever had a season? Maybe you're in one right now and it feels to you like you were just up against it. You don't know whether to turn right. You don't know whether to turn left. You haven't got any options and the only options that are available to you aren't particularly good ones. It feels to you like you're just fighting a losing battle. And even there are many Christians that I know and that I've counseled and they would say that they felt this exact same way, even though they've got the lingo down. So even though they can talk in this way that churchy people like to talk, they might say things like, well, you know, I'm not having a great time, but the battle belongs to the Lord. And yet they're living as though they're stressing about it like it's completely their own. They've got this Christian way of speaking and they'll say things like, well, God can make a way. And yet they live life like they are living completely trapped. They can use language and say things like, well, God is strong and God is able. And yet they live completely fear-stricken and weak, and like God is not able to accomplish anything good in our lives. I mean, some of us know exactly what it's like to feel like I'm fighting a losing battle. Have you ever been in a situation in life where you're trying to please somebody? Like you're just trying to get their attention, you're trying to engage with them in a positive way, maybe a friend or a family member, maybe a son or a daughter, and it just feels to you like it doesn't matter what you do around them, they will not stop being awkward around you. You're fighting a losing battle. Has anybody ever felt like you may be fighting a losing battle in your mind? Like this happens all of the time when you have something that's slightly bad happening to you and then all of a sudden, some of us, we are absolutely brilliant at blowing the whole thing completely out of proportion. And now that small thing, we jump to the worst possible case scenario ever in an instant. What do I mean? Well, I mean like, you know, you're helping somebody move house and you hurt your back because you're lifting a piece of heavy furniture. Well, that very night you're on Google and because your back is hurting, you've convinced yourself that you're now dying with a terminal illness. You just feel like you're fighting a losing battle in your mind. You blow things out of proportion. 
or even simple things. And this can happen across the entire length of the pendulum swing. Even simple things like your car goes for an MOT. And even though your car flew past its MOT last year with flying colours and you've got no bangs or rattles going on at the moment, you put it in for an MOT and the moment that car hits the ramp, you convince yourself, well, this is never going to pass. Now we're going to have to sell the car, buy a new car, and I have to buy a new car. I can't afford to feed the kids. So now we're going to have to put the kids up for adoption. And all of a sudden, right, you're fighting this losing battle in your mind where something happens. And before you know it, you're living life over here. For some of you, you know what it's like to fight a losing battle in your mind because you've been to the interview so many times and you've been rejected on so many occasions that now even before you're seated at the table, you're reading the rejection letter in your mind. You know what it's like to fight a losing battle. For some of you, you know what it's like to fight a losing battle with your kids at home. I mean, what started out when they hit their teenage years as just a little bit of an awkward, uncomfortable moment and you were battling over them, tidying up their room, now has blown into a full-scale war as you try and get them to battle to clean up their act entirely. We all know what it's like to fight a losing battle. And the thing about fighting a losing battle is that when you live life like that, it can leave you feeling tired and frustrated. Frustrated especially because we feel ill-prepared for many of the battles that life throws at us. But what if being a follower of Jesus meant that we weren't supposed to live life that way? What if being a follower of Jesus really meant that as you follow Jesus, that your life gets better? What if as you follow Jesus, he makes you better at life? What if you didn't have to live life all of the time feeling like you're fighting a losing battle? Well, some of our heroes knew exactly what it was like to fight a losing battle. And yet they also encountered immense occasions where God really came through for them. We're gonna deep dive into a passage of scripture today taken from the Old Testament. We're gonna go from the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus chapter 17. Before we go there, just let me briefly give you an overview of the context of what's actually happening. So we're now gonna look at the life of Moses. Moses was the leader of the nation of Israel. Israel had been captive and held as slave, slaves to the Egyptian regime for decades. And Moses was the guy that presented himself to Pharaoh and demanded that he let my people go, which Pharaoh agreed to, and then he changed his mind. So the Israelites, in, with Moses at the leadership, at the helm, he led them to the Red Sea, and it looked to them like the Red Sea was gonna take them out because there was no way that they could cross it. And then all of a sudden, God, through his miraculous, supernatural means, saw to it that the Red Sea opened and they literally were able to walk through on dry land. Now, after they'd been through the Red Sea, what they found was they didn't actually have a place or a town or a village that they could call their own. So they ended up not being able to harvest the land and plant seed. And in fact, they became hungry. They had no water. So again, God miraculously provided for them. He gave them water and he gave them manna to eat every single day. They didn't go without a meal. And now after all of this, they arrive at a town called Rephidim. Let's jump into the text, Exodus 17, verse eight. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, 
Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. I just want to press pause very briefly. If you've got a Bible or if you're on the Bible app right now, you can just highlight that word Rephidim. I want you to know that the place that the Israelites arrived at, Rephidim, was a place that actually means refreshment or rest. In other words, they'd had a really big journey on their hands. And man, they had encountered some incredibly difficult challenges. But now they've arrived at Rephidim. Rephidim was supposed to be the place where they become refreshed, where they gather their breath again, where they recuperate in their souls, where they are made to feel rested up. And what happened at Rephidim? Well, it was simply an age-old tactic of the enemy that he used against the Israelites here that he also uses against you and I even today. During the time and the season when they felt like they deserved a rest, during the time and the season where they felt like this was gonna be their moment to be refreshed, this was gonna be their greatest hour, they ended up being attacked and it took them out and it completely blindsided them. And some of us know exactly what that's like too. A couple of years ago, before we had bought this building, we were bouncing around venues all across Liverpool and man, we had used so many of them. But one of the best venues that we actually ended up hiring on a weekly basis, it was such a big step of faith because it was gonna cost us four times the amount of money in rent than we had ever previously paid. And it was called the Capstone Theatre. Some of you might even remember doing services in the Capstone Theatre. And um, the thing about the Capstone Theatre was it just, it had some tech, it had some equipment and it had some area that we paid for where we could hire our gear, store our hired gear in their space. And it was just gonna make our life feel a little bit more easy. And it was a great venue. It wasn't quite as big as this, but it would seat a couple of hundred people. And it just felt like this was gonna be such a great time in the life of church. In fact, here's a picture of the Capstone Theatre that we've got for you here. It comes even with the, um, even with the star cloth. We were all about the star cloth in those days. Give us some twinkly lights in the background. But I think there's Josh leading worship and Hales. And I think that's actually Dave Alex playing the drums and Sammy on keys. Like that, that was just our band back then. And the bottom line is, is that it felt for us like this was going to be a great season in the life of church. And we did Sunday night in there and made, the place was packed and it was so great. It was awesome. And then that Monday, not even within 24 hours, my wife ends up going to the doctors and by the Friday of that week, they gave us a cancer diagnosis. It blindsided us. That was not the season that that was supposed to happen in. This was the first time for us, it felt like our world was starting to work. Well, I want you to know that that is often the plan of the enemy. He will use the refidums in your life to try and take you out. And if I can tell you what he, what he tries to do, it makes us more observant. Sometimes you can think that God's gonna do something just like this and actually it ends up looking completely different. Why? Because he always attacks you at your place of Rephidim. But the verse goes on. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. 
As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. I just want to give you a second point in this story before we even get into the main body of the text. I just want you to notice again, if you've got a Bible or you're on the Bible app, highlight the word Amalekites. I want you to know clearly who it was the Israelites were fighting. Because the Amalekites were actually, they were distant relatives of the Israelites. Actually, what had happened was the grandchildren of Esau, that was the brother of Jacob, and you don't necessarily need to know of all the lineage, but the bottom line is they were being attacked by their own family. Like it was their own family that were trying to take them out. And yet, isn't that an age-old tactic that the enemy uses even in our lives today? Sometimes it's the people that you expect to love you the most end up hurting you the most. It's an age-old tactic. Sometimes it's the people that you think you can trust with your life are the ones that end up stabbing you in the back. It's an age-old tactic. Verse 12, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write on a scroll, as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. Remember that phrase, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Verse 15, remember that phrase, the Lord is my banner. In the King James Version of the Bible, verse 15 has Moses calling his altar this. He says, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. Jehovah Nissi. This is who God is. God is Jehovah Nissi. Now, Just before you want to write me, email me, accuse me of not knowing the historical context of this word, I completely understand that the original Hebrew word was Yahweh, Yahavah, but now I understand that what we did in the 8th century was we added our vowels to those consonants and we made this name Jehovah. So I understand the historical context of the name if someone wants to be mean and cruel and tell me that I don't understand the Bible. Hey, I completely get it, but I promise you, we're gonna arrive at the same place. So whether we call the name of God Yahweh or Jehovah, Jehovah Nisi is gonna arrive at the same place, I promise you. And it's the God of Jehovah Nisi that I want to introduce to you today. So what do you do when you feel like you're fighting a losing battle? What is there that Moses knew, because he clearly knew something to say, Jehovah Nisi, this is the name of God. This is a characteristic of God. This is who God is. There's clearly something that he knew, that he felt that it was important that we know too. So, You're going to feel like you're fighting a losing battle unless you realise, number one, it's not all about me. Verse 11, let me just recap. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. We don't need verse 12. It is true 
that from the story, we can find that Moses instructs and deploys Joshua to go down into the valley and take some soldiers with him because he's intent on going to do battle. It is true that it was absolutely in Moses' thinking that we were going to have to do something. But what is not true is to think that this was all Moses or this was all Joshua. Because what we actually find is that this battle was not won with swords and spears, but it was won with this crazy, hard to describe, miraculous, supernatural act that we saw happen with Moses and Aaron and her. It's a crazy thing to even picture, but just picture it for a moment. Moses goes, I'm gonna go to the top of a hill and every time I lift my hands up like this, we're gonna be winning the battle. And every time my hands drop, the Amalekites are gonna be winning the battle. And you kind of think like, that's just such a really weird picture. But it's fascinating to me that it isn't even God that instructs Moses to do this. But what Moses is aware of is that we were gonna need to fight, but it's not all about me. I'm gonna need to be dependent on God to do something because if I don't, they're gonna get the upper hand. There is something that's gonna need to take place supernaturally, miraculously, that I'm not gonna always be able to explain or describe, but God's going to somehow get involved in what I'm about to do. In other words, it wasn't the fighting alone that brought the Israelites the victory against the Amalekites. And what we find is that at the end of this battle, Moses wanted to mark the moment, he creates and builds an altar and he calls it Jehovah Nisi. Jehovah Nisi is the name that he gives it. Verse 15, it tells us that Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nisi. Jehovah Nisi means, and there's a few ways that you can interpret this, but it means the Lord is my banner or the Lord who fights for you. The Lord is my banner is actually, it's a military term. A banner was almost similar to a flag, although it wasn't made of fabric material. It was typically made of some kind of metal. And this metal would go on the top of a pole. And the idea was, was that people would be able to see this banner on the top of a pole who were in the same fighting army and regiments and they would need to know where they should gather and where do you gather? Around the banner. So in other words, what would happen is, is every single time there was going to be a retreat, you would retreat to the banner, to the flag, or every time there was going to be an advancement of the army, they were going to move forward. How would you know that was going to happen? Where would that all start from? It would start from the banner or the flag. So the idea that Moses is trying to convey is, yes, we won a battle, but it was Jehovah Nisi that fought the battle for us. The Lord is our banner. And what this tells us is this, is that you might not have a battle against the Amalekites today, but every single time you fight sickness and illness and disease, you can also know that God is Jehovah Nisi. He's the one that fights for you. You don't have to do it all on your own. You're not gonna walk the journey completely on your lonesome. He's gonna be right there in the middle of it, in the thick of it, guiding your steps. How do we know that? Because he's Jehovah Nisi. He's your banner. He's the one that fights for you. Every single time that your mind convinces you that you'll never get the job, 
that you'll never get a girlfriend, that you'll never get a something. What can we do? We can remind ourselves that God is Jehovah Nissi. He's the one that will help us fight the battles that go on in our minds. Every single parent that's struggling with something going on with your kids right now, what do you need to know? You don't have to fight it on your own. Why? Because Jehovah Nissi is the one whose banner that we all surround ourselves with and He will fight for us. You have a God that fights for you, that's on your side. And it doesn't have to be all about you anymore. It's not all about me and what I can do and what I can achieve because Jehovah Nissi will help you fight your battles. But you are gonna feel like you're fighting a losing battle unless you also realise it's not all about God either. It's not all about you, but it's not all about God. And that's what we see in this story. Verse nine tells us, Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Verse 13. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. The point being that even though God is Jehovah Nissi, he'll fight your battles alongside you. He is your banner. He will help you. It's not all God. Joshua still had to take an army and physically go with swords and spears and helmets and breastplates. And he still had to go and do battle against the Amalekites. The bottom line was, is that God's involvement in your life does not mean that you now get to live an inactive, passive life. There are gonna be things that you've got to do to be a part of the battle, but be a part of whatever battle it is that you're facing, knowing that God's also fighting with you and for you. You know, and I see so many people get this wrong, especially in the church world, you know? They'll say things like, well, God hasn't really done a lot for me right now. I've been praying for a job and I don't know why he hasn't given me my dream job. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't get out of bed until 1 p.m. I don't think that that's God's fault that you've not got a job. It's like, you might have to send off 50 application forms. You might need to go knocking on some doors. There are gonna be things that you have to do because your unwillingness to do them will not cause God to become active in your life. He's always gonna be drawn to movement and motion. He's gonna be drawn to your steps. It's who God is. It's how He works. Sometimes people say, well, God just hasn't brought me a beautiful wife yet. And I'm like, yeah, but dude, have you thought about having a shower? Have you thought about cleaning your teeth? Have you thought about using some aftershave? Have you thought about like not being so prickly every time someone tries to speak to you because you're blaming God for things that you are completely responsible for? Are you worried that you're not becoming the person that you are looking for is looking for? Because unless you are becoming that, no one's gonna be looking in your direction anyway. Some people say, well, I'm not too sure that we can trust God because God's never given me the platform yet and I've got a gift, I've got a message, I can sing like Haley, no problem, just give me my shot, give me my, give me my chance and I'll blow you all away. Hey, listen, I promise you, it's not the way it works. God's willing to fight and He's willing to go to battle for you but it's not just on the terms of you giving him all of your demands. Sometimes engaging God in the battle with you looks like just being faithful in the small things first. You on the platform, have you thought about putting a t-shirt on and welcoming some people? Have you thought about who can I help? Who can I serve? That's who he is because it's not 
all about God. There's a part that you've got to play too. And there was a part that Joshua had to play. He was in the thick of it as well. It isn't all God. Like, and I worry sometimes how many of us get stuck in life because we almost live life expecting God to do something that he's already placed the responsibility on us to do. I mean, like seriously, if you don't end up, you'll always end up falling victim to something unless you actually actively go ahead and do something. And I'm just like, how many times do we end up not living in the, the way that we feel that we ought to be because we're just being inactive and passive? There's a lot of young guys and you deal and wrestle and struggle and fight with pornography. And it's like, hey, rather than just watching porn and then praying and watching porn and then praying, why don't you get three of your friends and all four four of you just get together and go, you know what? We're gonna say no to this now because it's gonna destroy my intimacy and my future marriage. It's gonna destroy the relationship that I'm gonna be in already. It's gonna hurt me. It's gonna like mess me up. So the four of us, we're gonna go and do something. We're gonna say, I'm gonna say no to that. I'm just not gonna be involved in that. Or if you struggle with a drinking thing, well, hey, why don't you just put yourself in a circle where not everybody's drinking all of the time. And by doing that, you're going to find that it's easier for you to abstain from drinking too. I mean, God will fight for you, but he's not going to do it all for you. The third thing then, in fact, let me just say this. I think that this is a good picture of of how God often works in our lives. You know, I have this problem in our marriage and um, it's a real serious problem. And what it is, is that whenever I walk home, and I walk through the door, Emma is like, she's just all over me. She's like trying to kiss me. And I'm going, no, Emma, honestly, like, please let me just come through the door. And she's just trying to kiss me and kiss me. And I'm like, come on, Hona. I understand it. I, if I were in your shoes, I'd have the battle to fight too. But just, just, just let me get in. Let me have a cup of tea first. <laughs> okay, that might not be completely true. However, I would like it to be true. <laughs> Isn't it true though, in any relationship, You love it when somebody else initiates physical contact with you, when someone gives you a kiss for no reason at all and they come up to you and they just want to kiss you. Like, isn't that something that makes you kind of go, wow, well, that was pretty awesome. And then being proactive, it immediately gets your attention. I think that that's what happens when we choose to go and practically do something does to God. It's like it just immediately gets his attention. So it's not all you, but it's not all God. The third thing though, that you've got to do if you want to stop feeling like you're fighting a losing battle is do your best and trust God will do the rest. Verse 10, Moses, Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. You know, when I think about this little act that Moses did here, I mean, let's just summarize it. Moses came up with a plan that was gonna be the saving grace of the nation of Israel. And his plan was, I go like this, we win. I go like that, we lose. If I go like this, we win. If I go like that, we lose. And there's nowhere in the text that tells us that God told Moses to do that, which makes me assume that maybe this was something that Moses felt like he should do. If I go like that, we win. If I go like that, we lose. If I go like that, we win. If I go like that, we lose. Could you not have come up with a better plan, Moses? Was that the best you've got? I think that sometimes what you've got to understand is that the action that God requires from us 
He doesn't oftentimes need it to be the best. It just needs to be your best. And if all you can come up with is if I go like that, we win. And if I go like that, we lose. If that's the only thing that you can come up with. If I go like that, we win. If I go like that, we lose. If that's the best thing that you can come up with, I think that that is perfectly acceptable to God. And you can call on the name of Jehovah Nisi to be the one that fights your battles alongside you. Because actually history tells us God doesn't need your plan to be the best. It just needs to be your best. Think about the time in the New Testament where the 12 disciples are gathered around and now it's it's feeding time. And there's 5,000 people plus women and children. What do we find that actually happens? It was the disciples who just started giving out food that was brought to them by some schoolboy. That was their best plan. It wasn't perhaps the best plan ever, but it was their best plan. We're just gonna start giving this out and God, we need you to turn up. So I'm gonna do what we can do And as I'm doing what I can do, I'm gonna believe that you're gonna step in and do that which only you can do. But now don't just think about the New Testament disciples. Think about the story of the paralysed man. Think about the man that was lowered through the roof that ended up encountering a miracle from Jesus. How did he get his miracle? Jesus didn't go find him. What happened was four friends thought, well, this is the best plan we've got. It's not a great plan, but we're gonna dig up a roof. We're gonna climb on the top and then we're gonna lower him down because we want to get him to Jesus. It might not have been the best plan. Could you not have just gone through the front door and been polite and said, excuse me, we've got a paralytic man here. Can you just move out of the way a little bit? Hey, it might not have been the best plan, but it was their best plan. And what do we see happened? It became magnetic to Jesus. Or think about David when he went out to fight Goliath. I mean, how crazy is this? He's a schoolboy that doesn't even go out wearing any armour, helmet, breastplate, sword, spear, nothing. He goes out with a slingshot and five stones. Surely that's not the best plan. Well, it was his best plan. And that's all God needed. And all God needs from you is your best plan, is your best movement, is your best action. And then when you choose to go, God, this is, this is all I got. I think that that's when he starts to get engaged. I think some of you, you need to understand that actually, if the very best that you've got is just a heartfelt prayer saying, God, I need something. I don't even know what it is I need, but I know that I need you and it's a something. I think that that's perfectly acceptable to God because I want you to know Liverpool One Church, this is who God is. He's Jehovah Nissi. He's the one that fights your battles for you. You don't have to fight them on your own anymore. You don't have to struggle with all of the tensions and the conflicts that arise in your life on your own. You can do it knowing the same thing that Moses knew, that He's Jehovah Nisi. He is your banner. He is the flag that you gather and build your life around. Jehovah Nisi, He's the one that fights alongside you and with you. So you don't need to do it on your own anymore. And it's not all you and it's not all God. But if you do your best, you can trust God to do the rest. Church, we're gonna stand and we're gonna pray and we're gonna worship together some more in a moment. Let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we pray and we pray to You today because we really wanna fully understand all that You would want us to know You as. And when we read about how Moses knew You and marked You as Jehovah Nisi, as the one that fights our battles, 
I pray that as a church family today, that we would know that and we would experience that in a real and authentic way too. That God, with all of the many different struggles and challenges that we all face at different times, would you help us as we bring our best to trust that you'll step in and do the rest. That as we do what we can do, that you do that which only you can do. Give us a new confidence, a new sense of assurance that you're with us, that you're guiding us, that you're walking with us, that you're leading us in charge and in battle. And that God, that we're not alone and we don't have to do this on our own. And we ask this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. But with every head still bowed and every eye still closed, just real quick, because the band are going to lead us in worship some more. But if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus and you find yourself that you're in church today, or maybe you've previously made a decision to follow Christ, but you've been running away, you've been doing your best to get as far away from God. But today in church, you're like, yeah, I want to know who Jehovah Nisi is. I want to know who this God really is. I think that He can change my life and I want to believe in Him. I want to become a follower of Jesus. Then I'm going to say a prayer real quick. And you could just pray this prayer in your heart after me. And this is you marking that moment to say, I'm not going to live for myself anymore, but I'm going to invite you to live in my life because I want to be a Christian. So if that's you, just pray this prayer in your heart after me right now. Heavenly Father, I want you to know I believe in you. And I believe that you're real. So today I'm asking that you would come and live in my heart. I'm asking you to be the Lord of my life. I believe that you're real. I believe that you gave your son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for me so that I can know you. So today I'm asking for forgiveness for all of my sin and all that I've done wrong as I'm choosing to follow you. So live in my life, live in my heart as from this day forward, I choose to call myself a follower of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you can take that message and apply it to your life. Also, don't forget to take a moment to subscribe, rate and review this podcast. To get connected or stay more connected to the life of Liverpool One Church and learn how you can join us live, visit liverpoolonechurch.com. Thanks again for joining us and we hope to see you again soon.